following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you were followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and the thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks, Christina. Christina is one of our youth workers here in the school, doing a great job. Great to have her on the team. I remember uh, back in 2010, went to a U2 concert. When U2 came out to Auckland, played at Mount Smart Stadium, and it was a great concert. It was quite soon after the Pike River disaster, and so that was on people's minds and hearts at the time, and uh, Bono paid tribute to the miners that had lost their lives in the concert, so it was quite an emotionally charged sort of event. And I remember after one of the songs, I think it was after Where the Streets Have No Name, that Bono just segued into this a cappella version of Amazing Grace. And just sung the entire first verse of Amazing Grace. Uh, and it, it, was, it was a really powerful moment. It was kind of a surreal experience where you've got 40,000 people, most of whom are not Christians, right outside a church context, right outside a Christian context, all completely mesmerized by the words of Amazing Grace. These, these words, these melodies that drifted out across the stadium. And I know that you could say, well, you know, people, most of them didn't really know what they were singing, and most people, that doesn't mean anything to them, and the words don't go in. And that's probably true. That's all true. I mean, the same 40,000 people were also singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So you don't want to read too much into it spiritually. But at the same time, I think my sense was that there, is, there was more going on, I think, than just Bono's vocals. I think people were, were mesmerized by more than just that, more than just a great show. I think there was something. There's something about that song, I think. There's something about those words. There's something about the power of that song that captures people's hearts. Uh, that song, Amazing Grace, it is the most recorded song in history. Uh, and it's the song that's been recorded by the most number of artists in history. And I think it's because it captures something deep within the human soul. It speaks to us somehow. It taps into something, taps into a deep longing, a deep yearning, a deep craving. Maybe we don't even know we've got it. Maybe we can't articulate what it is. But at its heart, it's a yearning for grace. At its heart, it's a longing 
for grace, even if we can't put it into those words. I think we've all got that, that longing to be able to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I think somehow those words, somehow that song just taps into something deep in the core of our humanity, a yearning for grace. And it's the topic of grace that Paul turns to in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, he's used the word grace numerous times already in this letter. If you remember the greeting in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul wishes the Ephesians grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. So he's already used that word up front and he's dropped it in over the course of the first chapter. But now as he turns the corner in chapter 2, he takes that one word, grace, and he drills down deep into the core of grace. So here in this passage, Paul is not going wide. He's not going broad. Now he's going deep. He's going deep into this one word, grace, and he's going to take us to the core of it and expose the core of it. He's going to expose the beating heart of grace and help us to see what it is and how it works and how it operates and how it applies to our lives individually, how it applies in our world. Because I think grace is one of those things like we know it's an important word. Uh, and if you're a Christian, you've heard the word lots of times and we sing songs about grace and we know it's in the Bible and, and we think it's important. We just don't always quite know exactly what it is. And it's a hard one to pin down, kind of wrap your arms around, figure out exactly what it is and how it works. So Paul is going to open this up for us and lead us hopefully into a deeper understanding of what grace is and more importantly, how we can experience more of the grace, not just head knowledge about this, but how we can experience and receive more of the grace of God in our lives. So let's follow him. Let's follow Paul as he walks us through this passage and uh, let him lead us deeper and deeper into the grace of God. The thing with grace is, the first thing is that if you really want to hear the good news about grace, you, you have to first hear the bad news. And I know this is not what you came to church for, but this is just how it is. And Paul knows this. And that's why he starts in chapter two with the bad news. You have to have the bad news before you get to the good news. And the bad news, I must warn you, is really bad. It's, it's really quite bad. Paul says, he starts chapter two with this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's a great start, isn't it? It's a cheery start. Father's Day, here we are, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And what Paul is doing, and this is what he'll do for the first three verses of this chapter, is he is describing who we are on our own. So this is who we are in our natural state, who you are in your own natural state. Apart from grace, apart from God, apart from any intervention, apart from Jesus, just who we are in and of ourselves. And he says, who you are in and of yourselves is you were dead. And every one of us were in this place at some time. Because nobody was born into grace. Nobody was born a Christian. Those of you that are Christians, you've made that decision at some point. You've come into that relationship, but nobody started there. And so either this describes you now or it described you at one point in your life. So there's no distinction. This is who we are or who we were. And Paul says, you were dead. And what he means by that is not that you were physically dead. You were very much physically alive. And you were having all kinds of experiences and you were living life. But he says, in relation to God, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. Because contrary to a lot of popular thinking, left to ourselves in our own natural state, we do not have a proclivity to the good. We do not have a proclivity towards God. We have a proclivity towards self. 
We have a proclivity towards self-centeredness and self-gratification. And we have inherited this, this human nature that is bent and warped and twisted and perverted out of shape. And it has turned us away from a God-centered life towards a self-centered life, away from a God-oriented existence toward an ego-centered existence. And Paul says, because of all that, where that's ended you up is that you're dead. In the sense that you are cut off from God. Dead in the sense that you're alienated from God. Dead in the sense that you, you cannot get back to Him. That you're cut off from His life, cut off from His peace, cut off from His presence, cut off from His power, cut off from His love. You are totally estranged. You are dead. Now, I know that's hard language. It's severe language. But I think Paul uses it for a reason. You see, if Paul had said, you were sick in your sins and transgressions, well, what do you need if you're sick? You need to get to the doctor. If Paul had said, you were lost in your sins and transgressions, well, what do you do if you're lost? If you're a woman, you look at a map, right? If you're a man, you keep driving. <laughs> you get more lost. But, it, you know, if we were lost, that's, we would need some good directions. But, but being dead is a different thing. If you're dead, you don't need medicine. If you're dead, you don't need directions. If you're dead, you need resurrection. And that comes only from God. Paul knows this. And the point that he's making is that in our deadness, in our dead spiritual state, you and I are completely unable to do anything for ourselves. We are com completely unable to get ourselves to God. Completely unable to raise ourselves to life. We're, we're, we're as stuck in our sins and transgressions and our deadness as a, as a corpse. We're as unable to help ourselves as a dead person is to raise themselves back to life. We are utterly helpless, utterly destitute, utterly depraved, and there's nothing we can do about it. We are dead. We are helpless. That's where Paul starts. It's pretty heavy stuff, and it actually gets a little bit worse, if you can handle it, just for another minute, because I want you to see the full picture. He not only says you're dead, but then at the end of verse 3, he says, and like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So that's even harder to fathom. Wrath is God's anger. This is God's holy anger towards our sin that leads him to punish our sin. And the punishment for our sin is not just death in the present, but it's eternal death. After this life is done, eternal separation from God, eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. That's the wrath of God. Now, I know, look, I know this is heavy language. I know this is really severe, and we struggle with it, and we wrestle with it, and we think, surely this doesn't apply to everybody. I mean, this might be something that applies to terrible people who do terrible things. But what about the person who spends their life serving the poor? What about the person who spends their life helping children with disabilities? What about the person that just gives money away, the kindest, nicest, most charitable person that you can imagine? Surely they don't meet this description. Surely they're not dead in their transgressions and sins. Surely they are not deserving of God's wrath. And this, I think, is exactly the problem that Paul's putting his finger on, is that we have grossly underestimated the seriousness of our own condition. We have grossly underestimated the gravity of our own sin and our own depravity that we would ever think 
that just in and of ourselves, our own goodness would somehow be enough to merit and to earn God's favor. All that shows us how, how deceived we've become and how deluded that we've become. We just tend to measure ourselves against one another. And we think, oh, well, you know, they're, they're doing all right and I'm not doing too bad. And that person's really bad. And, Gee, that person's amazing. Look at all the things they do. We're just comparing ourselves to one another. And we've lost sight of the true comparison who is God. And against his holiness, against his righteousness, we have all fallen so far miserably short. Even our smallest sins bring us under God's condemnation and his wrath and his judgment. Let me uh, illustrate this to you with a little example. I want to read to you an extract from a book called Confessions. It's by Augustine, who was a bishop in the church in the uh, 4th and early 5th century. And he's writing in this part of the book about a particular sin that he committed one night. He doesn't name it here, but he writes about his response to it and how it made him feel. And I want you to think, as I read this, I want you to try and guess what the sin is that he committed. He says, It was foul, yet I loved it. I loved to undo myself. I loved mine own fault, not that for which I committed the fault, but even the very fault itself, a base soul, shrinking back thus from my hold fast upon thee, even to utter destruction, not affecting anything from the shame, but the shame itself. Those are pretty strong words. I mean, it kind of sounds like, what? It sounds, it sounds like he's had some kind of illicit affair. It sounds like he's committed some terrible crime. The way that he responds to this, this foul sin that led him to utter destruction, led him into shame. It sounds like a, a terrible act. Do you know what it was that he did? He stole a pear. He stole a pear from a pear tree. And that act, that little act of petty theft, made him feel like this. And he records it all in his book. Now, you could say that that's someone who feels way too badly about themselves and he should just get over it. But I think, in a way, he's putting his finger on something. That even the smallest of sins, the smallest of little acts or thoughts or words that we say that dishonor God, the smallest of sins make us sinners, don't they? The smallest of law-breakings make us law-breakers. The smallest of transgressions make us transgressors. The smallest drop of ink pollutes the whole glass of water, and it's no longer drinkable. We commit one tiny little sin, and we bring ourselves under the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation of God. And so what we need to establish at the outset is that this picture of humanity is all of us. It's every single one of us without distinction. There is no hierarchy of people. In God's eyes, there is no Adolf Hitler at the bottom, Mother Teresa at the top. We are all in the same boat. We are all dead in our sins and transgressions, and we are all equally deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Hallelujah. Do we need some good news after all of that? And I think this is the point, that Paul brings us to a place of feeling so wretched about ourselves that we are longing for a word of grace. And that's exactly what he gives us. In verse 4, he turns the corner and he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ 
Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Don't we need to hear that word after the depravity of verses 1 to 3? The whole passage turns on the hinge of the word, but at the beginning of verse 4, that is the hinge on which this passage swings. Paul turns the corner, and it's a spectacular view. But because of his great love for us, the grace of God originates in the love of God. The grace of God originates in the love of God. God could have left you dead. God could have left you in your sins and transgressions and done nothing about it. There was nothing. We're not entitled to anything from God. God's not obligated to give, give us a hand up or a hand out or anything like that. If God had just left you in your own sinful state and condemned you for all eternity, he would have been just and right and fair. Yes, he could have done it. But God is driven with this inexplicable love for us that we can't understand and it makes no sense and we can't explain it, we can't describe it and we cannot fathom it, but he is driven by this extraordinary love that compels him and drives him to do something about our condition. He says, I'm not content just to leave you as you are in your own sins and transgressions and deadness. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to launch this incredible search and rescue mission and that's exactly what he's done. And God has done this by coming to us in Jesus. He has come to us in Jesus, come into this world. He has lived on our behalf, and he has died on the cross for our sins. And on the cross, this takes us to the heart of grace. This is where it all comes together. We see it on the cross. Because what God has done is Jesus hung there and bled and suffered and died. God brought about something unbelievable. God brought about something that theologians call the wonderful exchange. I think the best way to describe it is in the words of Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great champion of grace. He, he came up with the phrase, the wonderful exchange. He says this, That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's but ours. That's the heart of grace. That is the beating heart of grace that on the cross, God took everything you deserve and placed it on Jesus. All of your sin, all of your failure, all of your flaws, all of your brokenness, all of your failure to live up to who God has created you to be, God placed all that on Jesus. And then he placed on Christ all the judgment for that, that we deserved, the judgment, the condemnation, the punishment, the wrath. Jesus took that for you. He took that judgment you deserved. He became alienated from the Father because of our sin. He took that upon himself, took the wrath. The wrath of the Father was poured out upon our sin on Jesus. He took all that we deserve. And then in place of that, this is the other side of the wonderful exchange. Jesus says, everything that is mine now, everything that I deserve becomes yours. This is the free gift that Jesus offers us. Everything that is ours goes to him. Everything that is his now becomes ours by sheer gift and because simply of the good pleasure of the Father. Everything that's Jesus becomes ours. And this is what Paul unpacks in verses 5 and 6. He says, you were made alive with Christ. It's verse 5 even when we were dead in transgression. So just as Jesus was made alive, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we are now raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. 
We're raised from death to life. That's what that song meant, that I've walked out of the grave. That if you belong to Jesus, you have come from that state of being spiritually dead. And through Jesus, you are now brought into this place where you are now alive. And you are now reconciled to God and have relationship with Him because of and in and through Jesus alone. And it gets better. Paul says, and verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So not only have we been resurrected with Jesus, but we've also been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms. It's kind of a confusing phrase because Paul says, it's not not just that you're going to go to heaven when you die, but in a sense, even now, you are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It sounds strange, doesn't it? Because right now you're sitting here in the gym on a gray chair. And you think, well, how is it that I can also be seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul's not talking about a split personality. He's saying, I know that you are sitting in the gym on a gray chair. But positionally before God, in terms of your position before God, your status before him, as it were, your relationship with him, in those terms, where are you right now? You are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's where you are. Yes, you're here now, but in terms of your relationship with God, you are seated there and no one's going to take that seat away from you. Did you know that? Because you didn't get yourself there. Jesus got you there. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Your identity is in Jesus. Therefore, you are seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where you are right now. It means that your relationship with God is absolutely secure. That right now, no matter what kind of day you're having, no matter what kind of week you've had, no matter what's coming up in the week, you are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's where you are. That's your place. That's your position. That's your status. You need to remember this on your very worst days. You have to remember this when you drift back to those old habits and those old patterns on those days when God feels a billion miles away. You can't sense him. You can't reach him. You can barely ever talk to him. When you drift back into being the worst version of yourself and you feel like, oh, God's just fed up with me. Come back to that verse. Speak it to yourself again out loud and say, I am seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You have to remind yourself of it. Where are you right now? I'm seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And nothing's going to change that. That's where you, Because it doesn't depend on how good you are. It doesn't depend on how bad you are. It depends on what Christ has done. And he has done enough. He's got you there. And he's going to keep you there. By the grace of God. You see how there's an entirely new basis now for your relationship with God? That's what grace means, that it's no longer based on your performance. It's no longer based on how miserable your life has been, what a failure you've been, or what a success you've been. And it's no longer based on what's going to happen in your life from this day forward and what a success you'll be and, 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 and how well you'll do in relationships and what a great Christian you'll be or what a miserable Christian you'll be. There is an entirely new foundation now for the way God relates to you, and it is Jesus Christ. He relates to you not on the basis of what you do or don't do. He relates to you on the basis of what Jesus has already done. And that work is finished. And so your position before the Father is utterly secure. Nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. 
you are absolutely secure. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that a liberating message? That's why grace is such a freeing, freeing word. That when it comes right down to it, grace means that we get the opposite of what we deserve. It's not, I know one of those old definitions is that we get what we don't deserve. Well, that's true, but it's more, it's that we get the polar opposite of what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We get mercy. We deserve to be cursed. We are immeasurably blessed. We deserve eternal condemnation. We get eternal life. We deserve to be utterly cut off from God. Instead, he embraces us and calls us his children. That's grace, getting the complete opposite of what you deserve. And it all comes about in and through the person of Jesus. Ultimately, grace is not a thing. It's not a commodity. It is a person. It is Jesus given to us as the gift, the grace of God. I think all this came home to me a little while ago uh, when our elders were meeting with Kerry and Annie Hilton from Freeset. And we sat around and talked to them about the work that they're doing in Calcutta. Uh, through Freeset, they've started that organization. And it's, it's an organization dedicated to, to bringing women out of prostitution, out of sex trafficking and sex slavery in Calcutta, which is just a, a massive industry. And it is an industry over there. And he was talking about how, for many of these women who, who get into the situation through all kinds of circumstances, the predominant religious worldview that they have is Hinduism. And within Hinduism, the predominant idea is karma. Right, so for these women, they're operating in the sense of karma. And so in this kind of destitute place where they've gotten themselves into this horrible, awful industry and situation, they're seeing it all in terms of karma and believing that the reason that they are where they are must be because of something that they did in a previous life that's now been carried over because it's all cause and effect. So now it's carried over. So now this is their lot in this life. And maybe if they can make enough good decisions and try and move themselves forward and do enough good in this life, maybe they will improve their lot in the next life. Maybe they'll, it'll be a little bit better. But of course, it's, it's virtually impossible for them to do that. They're so completely stuck and entrenched. But maybe if they try hard enough, they'll improve their lot in the next life. And Kerry was talking about how the free set workers come along and start talking to these women about grace. And it's just so liberating for them because grace is the complete opposite of karma. Grace just turns karma on its head and says, it's not about cause and effect. In your life, it's not about you do a certain amount and then, and then you, you'll better your lot in the next life. You could never do enough. So you need to accept that to start with. You, you could, you, you'll never be deserving of God's grace. But God has given you his grace and God has poured his love upon you based on no merit of your own. Based not on anything you do, nor on anything that's been done to you by anyone else. None of it depends on that. This is a gift that is purely and utterly free. It is a pure gift, and all you need to do is receive it. And he said, it's no wonder that women are so drawn to this message, so drawn to the gospel, because it is such a message of freedom. It is so liberating and so different to what they've heard in their lives so far. It's a message of incredible freedom, the grace of God, that we receive the polar opposite of what we deserve. And so then, Paul's talked about the grace of God. 
And he touches on in verse 8 how we receive this grace. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So how do we receive this grace? We know it's an incredible gift. The way we receive it, Paul says, is by faith. Faith is, is the vehicle. Faith's the vessel. It's the response that we have to the grace of God. And faith just simply means at its heart, it just simply means entrusting our lives to God, handing our lives over to God. And some people get a bit funny about this because they say, oh, well, hang on. Does that mean that faith is something that we have to do? We have to kind of conjure up faith and therefore it makes it a work and therefore it's kind of counts and it takes away from what Jesus has done. No, no, faith is not something that earns you any points. Faith is not a, a work. Faith is not a, a, a merit system before God. Faith is just opening your arms to God. That's all it is. Faith is just opening your life to God and receiving the gift that he gives us. Like any gift, it has to be received, right? And that's where faith comes in. It is just saying yes to God and entrusting our lives to him. And we do that by coming honestly before God and talking to him and we confess our sin. We own up to our own condition before God. And we're honest with ourselves, we're honest with him, and we receive his forgiveness. We receive his freedom. We receive this relationship he offers us with himself, and we entrust our lives to him. That's faith. Paul says it's by grace you've been saved. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. That's our response. And then he qualifies that by saying, and by the way, it's not by works so that no one can boast. And this is important. Works are really any, any good deed, any, any action, any good action that we can do in our lives. For the Jewish people, this was all bound up in the law, law-keeping, Sabbath-keeping, diet laws, and so on. For us, could be anything. Could be serving the poor, could be acts of kindness towards other people, could be giving money away, could be going to church, could be reading a Bible, all of these things. They're, they're good works, they're good deeds, and, and they're healthy things to do. But Paul says, understand this, none of those deeds will ever contribute anything to your standing before God. We have to somehow get this into our heads and our hearts. All those things that you might do that are good deeds, selfless deeds, charitable deeds, humanitarian deeds, all of that, all good, none of it will ever contribute anything to your relationship, your standing, your position before God. None of it. And if we try, if we try and use our good works, to further us, to get us to God, to earn his favor, our own good works will damn us. Our own good works will condemn us because they reveal our pride. That you would ever think that by doing some good deed, you would merit the favor of a holy God. All that does is expose the arrogance of humanity, that we would ever, ever think that. So good works don't work. They condemn us. Isaiah says even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. They cannot ever earn you any standing with God. I think this is a difficult message for us to, to grasp. I think maybe it's particularly difficult for working class people, middle class people, because we're used, we have got a strong work ethic and you've worked hard for where you're at in life. You've worked hard to get where you are. You've worked, you work hard for your income that you bring home to your family. And this is how it is. And we're used to working hard. We don't like the idea of a spiritual welfare state. We don't like the idea of being dependent. We don't like the idea that there's this kind of heavenly welfare state that now I need to completely rely on. Surely I can do something. 
Surely I can contribute. Surely I can at least just make myself a little bit more easy for God to love. A little bit easier for God to pour his grace upon me. I mean, I know that he does most of it, but can I not just do a little bit? You know, this is the old, you do your best and God will do the rest kind of scenario. And we, we drift into it, don't we? We default to it. It's just, we go to that. Even when we pray sometimes, I hear this, I find myself doing it sometimes, you know, I'll do such and such. And you know, I know they're, they're doing so much and they're doing, hard, they're doing it hard. They're trying their hardest, but beyond that, God, could you please help them? You know, in other words, beyond what we can do, we need God to make up the rest. We need God to make up the deficiency. And God says, no, you can't get any runs on the board at all. And if you think you do, that's just pride and that's adding to your sins. When it comes to grace, all we can do is receive it. And that's not easy, but that's all we can do. We have to learn a posture of passivity. When it comes to the grace of God, we have to learn a posture of passivity. You have to make yourself passive. You have to be able to just receive it. You have to be able to come to the Father and say, I have nothing. In fact, it's worse than that because what I have is deserving of wrath. I have nothing. All I can do is receive. All I can do is receive. It is not our works that are going to save us. They might be good things. They might be healthy things to do. They will never contribute to our salvation. It is grace. It is grace. It is grace all the way down. All we can do is receive it. Now then, finally, in verse 10, Paul turns another corner and he describes to us what a life of grace looks like. He's talked to us about how we receive grace. He's talked to us about faith. He's talked to us about how this is not by works so that we can't boast in our own abilities. And then he says, here's what life looks like in the grace of God. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We'll get to that in a minute. But he uses this beautiful word handiwork there in verse 10. That word handiwork, it's the Greek word poiemos. And it's where we get the English word poem. Uh, it, the word describes a beautiful work of art. A real masterpiece. So not like a scrappy school project art piece, but a really nice work of art. A really prized, valuable piece of artwork. Or a really valued classic novel. Or a, a poem that is incredibly valuable and highly regarded. It's that kind of work of art. It's that kind of masterpiece. And Paul says, this is who you are. This is who you are to God. He has created you to be this masterpiece. But because of our sins and transgressions, we've become damaged, <clears throat> we've become stained by sin, we've become so much less than who God created us to be. But in Christ, God has recreated you. In, in Christ, God has renewed this masterpiece through Jesus now. He's recreated you and you are now a masterpiece of grace. Not, not who you are in and of yourself, but you are now a work of art. You are a masterpiece of God's grace, a testimony to his grace and his goodness and his kindness. Doesn't that speak to you of your value and your love in the eyes of the Father, that he would look at you and call you his masterpiece of grace? You're a work of art in the Father's eyes. Not who you are in yourself, but who you are through Jesus. And then Paul finishes with this. He says, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, that's a very confusing statement, and we wish he hadn't said it, really because he'd been doing so well for, for nine verses. 
and you have this negative statement about works in verse 9, and he's just told us it's not by works. We've dismissed those, right? We've gotten rid of works. Okay, Paul, we're with you on that. And then he turns around and says, by the way, you're created to do good works. So he reintroduces works and in a positive sense. So what is it, Paul? Are we supposed to do good works or are we not? Are they good? Are they bad? What's happening? Well, this, I think, is where we need to see the scope of God's grace. That so often we see grace as this thing that happened to us when we became a Christian. Then we received God's grace. It was like kind of a shot in the arm at that stage. We got God's grace and that was it. But Paul's saying to us, Scripture is saying to us, God's grace will never leave you as you are. God's grace will always meet you exactly where you are. No matter your circumstances, no matter how destitute you are, God's grace will come down and meet you right where you are and, and draw you to God. But God loves you far too much to leave you that way. And so as soon as we're saved, God's grace gets to work in our lives. As soon as we're saved, God's grace begins to work at a deep level of our life and it begins to change us from the inside out. It starts to work on our habits and pull us away from some of the old habits and the old practices gradually, steadily. God works on the inclinations of our heart. He works on our character. He works enlarges our hearts for other people and for his church. He starts to connect us with ways to join in with what he's doing in the world and shows us those opportunities and those avenues to be part of his mission in the world. All of these are good works and all of them are good and all of them are of grace if we understand them correctly. That none of these things will ever, ever earn an ounce of your salvation. But they are an outworking of the salvation that we receive from God. So your works will never save you. But having been saved, these good works are the expression and the overflow of a grateful life who has been saved by an awesome God. That's what these works are. So you see, grace is not just what saves us. It is also what transforms us. So, so that when we, when we seek to do good works in the power of God's Spirit, when we seek to allow Him to change our character, it's not that we started living in grace, but now, we've just, now we're just having to live by works. No, no, we're still living by grace. Even now, grace saves us, and then grace works on us and transforms us throughout our whole lives. And works can become part of that. They don't contribute to our salvation. They don't even earn us that standing with God. But on the other side of being brought into God's family, they now become the overflow of a grateful heart, lived out as an expression of love. And we work out that salvation in fear and trembling. So grace saves us, grace transforms us, and grace will lead us home. It's grace the whole way along, just as it's grace all the way down. And so when you step back from this, this panoramic picture that Paul paints us of the grace of God, this grace that took us out of being dead and deserving of God's wrath, this grace that has made us alive in Christ, this grace that has seated us in the heavenly realms, this grace that will be poured out immeasurably when Jesus returns, how can we not be moved by that? How can our hearts not be stirred? How, how do we not end up saying with, with John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing, isn't it? That, that song contains one of the harshest terms about our personality, that we are wretches. But it resonates with biblical truth because when you understand your wretchedness in God's eyes, you understand all the more the beauty and the bounty of the grace that he's poured into our lives. 
How can we not have our hearts moved and stirred by that? And so I just invite you to consider as we close, what are the ways in which God's grace has not yet got a hold in your life? Just think about this for yourself. What are the areas, what are the ways in which God's grace is not yet apparent to you? Or that you've not yet fully grasped the grace of God? Or maybe more accurately, you have not yet fully been grasped by the grace of God. Maybe you recognize yourself still in those first three verses. And you realize looking at them, that's me. I'm still dead. I'm still dead in my sins and transgressions. I I haven't come out of that state yet. I'm still under God's wrath. And if that's you, if you've you've never turned to God, if you've never received that, that gift, Jesus invites you to receive that. Everything that needs to have been done for that to happen has been done by Christ on the cross. Jesus now invites you to come and receive that gift and respond in faith, open your heart to him, and that gift is poured into your life. You can be made alive in Christ today. You can be seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus today. And maybe for you, perhaps this is more common, that you're a Christian here, and you have been saved, and you have received God's grace, but what you recognize is that you keep drifting back into that performance mentality in relation to God. It's like you get back on the old treadmill and back into the performance way of thinking. And maybe that means that you keep on, the things you're doing to keep trying, and you keep trying to be good enough to earn God's favor, to make God smile, to make God pleased with you. Or maybe you're wondering if you are good enough, and you're not sure, and you don't know whether you're really going to heaven or not, and you're not sure how that's going to work out. Or maybe you just have already concluded you can't do it. Maybe you tried, and it's too hard, and you've fallen off the wagon, And now you're just living in guilt because you know you're not good enough and it's just hopeless and you don't feel like you measure up. Well, that too is living under a works kind of mentality, just at the opposite end of the spectrum. You're still basing your relationship with God on what you do. Now you're just feeling miserable because you know you can't do enough. And if that's you, God invites you to come to him today. And he invites you to come to the cross, as it were. This is, this is, in our mind's eye, the place to come and to picture on the cross what Christ has done and to recognize it is at the cross that all of our strivings cease. It is at the cross that all of your vain attempts to try and posture yourself to earn the favor of God are put to death. It's at the cross where all of your wonderings about whether you're good enough and whether you're deserving and worthy, all of that is put to an end as well because the cross says, no, you're not. And it's at the cross that all of our guilt and our shame because we can't do enough and I'm not good enough and our feelings of disappointing God, letting him down and not being enough for him, all of that is put to an end as well because it's at the cross we hear the words of Jesus spoken over our lives again. It is finished. It's finished. All of that's done. All of that is over now. All the wondering and all the not sure and all the I'm not good enough and all the maybe I am good enough, all of that's gone. Because now there is a new basis for our relationship with the Father and it is not what you do, it is what Christ has done. It is not whether you're enough, it is Christ who is enough. It is not whether your good deeds are sufficient, it is Christ who is sufficient for you. And if God's grace has not really taken hold in your life, I invite you to come to the Father again this morning. Pour out your heart to him and let him fill you again with his immeasurable grace and remind you of some of those truths that maybe you learned a long time ago in Sunday school, but they've still never really apprehended your heart. 
they've still never really become that deep, deep center of your life. I invite you to come again to God and allow him to press his grace into your life and remind you of what has always been true, but maybe you've forgotten it or never fully grasped it, that you are loved and it's because of Jesus and not you. May we receive the grace of God into our lives afresh and may it become the defining center out of which we live every day of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to ask that you would do among us now what only you can do, and that is to search our hearts and our minds. And Lord, you see everything that we're carrying. You see everything we're feeling. You see this morning how we're responding. And you see what your word is doing in our hearts. Some of us, it's stirring something up. Some of us, it's just emptying something out. Some of us, it's raising some questions. And Holy Spirit, I want to pray now that you would just work in the hearts of those who are open to you this morning, Lord Jesus, and those who are not, and those who are searching, and those who are wondering, and those who are just feeling that, that longing and that yearning and that thirsting for your grace in their lives. I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just pour your grace out in fresh measure and in abundance this morning. Lord, for those that don't know how to take hold of it, Lord, would you lead them to yourselves? To, for those who, who think that they are past it and could never, ever come back to you and receive it, Lord, would you just set all that aside and draw them to yourself, Lord, draw their hearts to yourself. Lord, to the ones that used to walk in your grace a long time ago, but that was a different day and a different season, and now they're just not quite sure what all this means. Lord Jesus, would you visit them again with your presence? Would you visit them again with your grace? Would you place your hand upon them and say, you are still mine. You're still my son. I've never left you. You're still my daughter. I've never left you. And now I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back to myself. I'm calling you to grace. I'm calling you home. Father, we want to say thank you, but that word, those words fall so far short. We're so undeserving, but you are so endlessly merciful. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that your grace would never be something that we just experience in a church service, but would just sink deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts so that it changes our lives. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your grace. It's in the name of Christ that we pray these things. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.